0: Welcome to the podcast of Saltbox Church, where we are rethinking church and reworking life around the person and presence of King Jesus. Good morning. Welcome. Glad you are here. Let's say together, uh, Lord Jesus, fill me. Lord Jesus, show me. Lord Jesus, convict me. And Lord Jesus, empower me. Father, as we open your word today in Acts, I pray that you would bring deep and profound revelation to our hearts and minds, and I pray that you would allow us to see and know you more deeply and more powerfully. Amen. Okay, I am in Acts 3, um, and... I am, you know how I'm going to do. We're going to dig into Acts 3. We're going to ask the Lord Jesus to mix it up, to share with us, to speak with us, to change our perspectives, shift our paradigms, take us deeper. Um, And if you want to go ahead and put a finger in Luke uh, 22, I'm a fan of a paper Bible, if you didn't know that. Um, I love highlighters and pens and, you know, if you're scrolling, that's no condemnation. Scroll away, no problem. But we're in Acts 3. I'm going to reference Luke 22 because I think that gives us a really full picture. Um, and, I, and I want to talk about something today that I think is unusual And you know how it is. I'm going to mine something out of this, or the Holy Spirit in me is going to mine something out of this. But what I see in Peter in the passage we're about to read is a depth of humility that I haven't seen previously in the scriptures. Make sense? So what I want to look at is what is this thing in Peter? How did this humility get there? And could it be that the humility of heart that we're beginning to see in the Apostle Peter is the very thing that enables the kingdom of God to be manifest most powerfully in his life, in the life of the apostles, and in the New Testament church? Yeah? All right, y'all can interact with me. Come on. Okay. That's good. So, We're in Acts 3, and uh, I'm not going to read those first few verses. We did it last week, but Peter and John were going to the temple in Jerusalem to pray um, at 3 in the afternoon, and there was a man who was born um, paralyzed, probably from the waist down from birth, um, so he could not walk. And do you remember what happened? He was healed. He was healed. He, he actually asked first for money, and uh, Peter notoriously looked at him and said, I don't have any silver and gold, but what I have, King Jesus, kingdom of God, I give to you in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And it says, the scripture literally says, his feet his ankles and knees became strong, and he stood up, and then he's dancing and yelling and going around praising God, making a huge commotion all over the temple. So I want you to think about something, though, as this is happening, because this man is making now a huge commotion, what is gathering around Peter and John? A huge crowd, maybe several thousand people. In fact, if you uh, scroll ahead or flip ahead to Acts 4, look at Acts 4.4, it says, but many who heard his message believed, that's Peter's message, so the number of men who believed grew to 5,000. So 2,000 people are actually going to come to Christ because of this guy being healed and then the sermon that Peter preached. So the question that I'm wrestling with is how is it that the, the kingdom of God is so powerfully manifest in and through the life of Peter, and what was happening in Peter's heart that allowed the kingdom to move through him so powerfully, both in supernatural healing, but also in leading people to Jesus and in growing the New Testament church? Make sense? Okay. So let's go back um, and let's look at verse, um, we'll start in verse 11. So this is Acts chapter 3, verse 11. While the man held on to Peter and John. Who's the man? The man who was paralyzed from the waist down. That's right. Held on to Peter and John. Now, what's interesting about Peter and John here is Peter and John um, were fishing together uh, in Luke 5 when Jesus first called them. Interesting? Interesting. Uh, what's also interesting about Peter and John um, is they were, um, uh, they accompanied Jesus up some mountain, we don't know which mountain, but some mountain when Jesus was transfigured um, and when God showed up and spoke to the Lord Jesus. Um, they also uh, prepared the last uh, Passover where Jesus did really communion or the Lord's Supper for the first time in Luke 22. Um, also in Luke 22, Peter and John argued over who was the Greatest. In fact, okay, here here we are in Acts 3.11, while the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. Okay, flip over to Luke 22. I'm not going to read this whole thing, but I want to walk you through Luke 22. We're going to start at verse 20. Okay, it says, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. Who took the cup? That's the Lord Jesus, that's right. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. What is this? This is the first communion. It's the first Lord's Supper. It's the first appropriation of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of King Jesus. So Jesus, sitting in this upper room, introduces all of the disciples um, to uh, the, the, the Lord's Supper. He introduces them to communion. And what do the disciples promptly do? they get in an argument over who's the greatest that sounds like us doesn't it So the Lord Jesus is there. They're lounging at this table. He's breaking bread. He's pouring out wine. He's saying to them, I am literally going to go and my body is going to be broken. My blood is going to be shed. I am fulfilling the old covenant and moving us into the new covenant. I am the lamb of God. I am becoming the lamb of God. I am going to be crucified. And if you're willing to give or surrender your life, then the life, my life, the life of Jesus will take up residence inside of you um, in this new covenant. He's saying, all that to them. Now, do they get it? Very, very little. And what do they do? It's like Jeffrey and I get in a fight over who's the greatest. I mean, you got to feel this, get this, understand this, These guys are all sitting around, the Lord of glory, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who knows their names and knit them together and was there at the beginning before time and will be there at the end after time. The Lord of all glory, the author of life, Peter actually calls him in Acts 3, is sitting there with them, breaking bread, helping them into the new covenant, and they get in a fight about which one's better. So how in the world do we have Peter and John who are arguing about who's greater, who's better, who's going to have the biggest, you know, whatever at the end, um, the the, the biggest crown in eternity at the end of the race? How do we go from that to suddenly Peter and John um, are in full partnership here in Acts 3? And and what I'd actually want to begin to propose to you is um, insecurity inside of us, um, relying on our own self, drives us to take credit or compete for greatness, but humility allows us to give credit to God. You follow me? To the degree that you are striving for, competing for um, recognition or greatness is also probably the degree to which the kingdom of God is not fully able to work in you and through you. That's a little humbling. Okay? So let's, uh, well, let me just finish walking you through here. So, these guys get in a big old fight sitting around at the Last Supper about who's going to be the greatest. Jesus corrects them. I'm not going to turn here, but you could also cross-reference John 13. These two stories go hand in hand. But as Jesus is sitting there, instead of simply correcting them, which he does, he actually pulls out a pan of water, um, probably some olive oil, and a towel, and he goes around in. He literally washes their feet. So the Lord of glory, creator of heaven and earth, commander of all of the angel armies, I mean, the one, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the master, the creator, the savior, um, corrects their fight and not just corrects it with words, but then he demonstrates it by getting down on his knees and he washes their feet. So he demonstrates greatness. So, is he showing in this moment um, insecurity or security? <laughs> Total security. Does he have any question who he is? By the way, security flows from identity. If you don't know who you are, you're insecure. If you know who you are, you're secure. Is Jesus secure in this moment? So much so that he doesn't need any human recognition. Say zero. Zero. Okay, so he goes around, and then, I'm, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but there's a big fight if you look at John 12, because Peter doesn't want Jesus to do what? Wash his feet. Peter's like, no, 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 you don't wash my feet. Because Peter knows. Peter knows he doesn't deserve it. He's not worthy of it. He's an absolutely raging mess. And then Jesus says, no, 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 I have to wash your feet. And Peter says, then not just my feet, but all of me. And, P- and Jesus is like, oh, Peter. You've already been made clean. I'm just now cleaning your feet. This is an external manifestation or picture of the internal reality that's happening inside of you. And then uh, Jesus actually says, Simon Peter, Simon Peter, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed that your faith will not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brethren. So what Jesus is now foretelling is that Peter's going to go through his three denials of Christ. So he's saying you are going to be sifted. In your sifting, you're going to fall and fail. I'm praying that your faith won't fail when you fall, and when you turn, you're actually going to strengthen your brothers and sisters. Now, let's flip back to Acts 3, verse 11. While the man... Held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. Verse 12. When Peter saw this, he said to them, People of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? That's humility. Does he take credit? Verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and every person in there would have known Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? In fact, likely the place where the temple was built, the temple mount, was the same place Abraham took Isaac up the mountain um, to, uh, at, the, at the call of God to sacrifice him in the Old Testament. That's another thing for another day. But everyone knew the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. And then Peter flips it and go, but you handed him over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate. Okay, so here's what I want to wrestle with. In this moment, verse 12, Peter saw this. He said to them, people of Israel, why does this surprise you? Is it possible that there's a moment in time here where Peter wants to take credit? Okay, let's rewind the clock. If Peter hadn't been sifted, if Peter'd still been um, pre this big argument, then Luke twenty-two about arguing over who was the greatest. If this scenario and situation had happened, and all of a sudden thousands of people gathered around Peter and they wanted to give him credit, do you think Peter have taken a little bit? I think he would have. I don't know that he would have taken total credit. But I think at that point in time, pre-sifting, back to Luke 22, if everyone had gathered around, they're all astonished, they're amazed. He said to them, people of Israel, why does this surprise you? This is John and I, and we're great. Why would this surprise you? We are, you know but but what you have instead is you have a man who has now embraced humility and brokenness of spirit to the point where he doesn't take any Look at this. This is so powerful. And and, and I would say to you, humility is the conduit of heaven. Humility is the the key to the kingdom. Humility is the thing by which you can begin to access not only the person of Jesus, but the active, daily, infilling, abiding presence of Jesus in your life. And it's the thing that even as a church, when we come together as a group of believers, it's the thing by which God is most powerfully activated in our midst, in our life, in our relationships, and in our world. Worship, Because we're not up here self-directing or sort of hogging the spotlight, but rather we are all giving um, glory and honor and praise to the Lord Jesus. Does that make sense? That, that's, what, that's what the call of us as New Testament believers is really all about. So I would say there is probably, and I, I can't, this is totally conjecture, this is Michael Mattis, this is not clearly in the scripture, but I would say in that verse 12, there's this moment where if you go back to my sermon last week where Peter's, he's, he's caught um, in, this, in this moment, do I um, acknowledge that it's all God, do I take a little bit of credit, there's probably a little moment where he has this old prick of human pride. And it sounds nice to take some credit, doesn't it? But he says, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? I mean, he gives full credit to God. If we had to define humility based on this passage. So let's keep reading just for a minute. Um, Verse 15, he actually says to them, you killed the author of life. I mean, can you imagine if y'all came in this morning and I just stood up and said, Y'all killed? But but that's what Peter's doing. So, so I think when I look at that, verse 15, I look at this entire passage all the way through to chapter four. What I begin to see is that I think humility is two things. It's honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Okay? But there's a second part, and it is um, recognizing that we can trade our sinfulness for His holiness. You follow me? So there's this ongoing recognition that humility is a, is a posturing. When you give your life to Jesus, when you surrender your life to Jesus, that's our mission statement as a church, leading people to become fully surrendered followers of Jesus. You are trading your brokenness or your sinfulness for the holiness and righteousness of God. You've seen me, uh, perhaps if you've been here, I'll take my jacket and I'll, and I'll take it off. That's my brokenness, and I'm, I'm handing it to Jesus symbolically, and symbolically I'm putting on the life righteousness of christ that's what happens it's this supernatural transaction and it happens not just when we come to christ but it happens day by day as we appropriate the resurrection power of jesus in our lives make sense so you're in a interaction with your spouse or your roommate or at work or whatever something happens and you've got this nasty response that rises up inside of you y'all ever have that you are not telling me the truth if you don't say yes (laughs) When that thing rises up, you're faced with that same moment of, Am I going to lay this down? Am I going to surrender it all? Am I going to allow the life of Christ to be lived in me and through me? Am I going to allow the kingdom of God to become, a, uh, am I going to become a conduit of the kingdom of God um, for this moment in my family, in my work, in my relationships? Or am I going to um, take sort of a position of pride, defend myself, um, rear up, have my own will and way? In which, what does the kingdom of God do? What is the presence of the Holy Spirit do if you persist in your own way? You follow me there? Does that mean you're not saved? No, I'm not talking about salvation. I'm really talking about the sanctification journey, if you want to put a theological word to it. But let's go here for just a second and imagine with me that Peter said, here, people of Israel, why does this surprise you? John and I are great. Would The church have continued, probably? I would say yes. I would say yes, because the truth of the gospel continued. Now, let's open up something else. Is it possible for American pastor leaders, teachers, worship leaders, Sunday school leaders, kids ministry leaders, youth leaders, to start right, and then be faced with this and deviate into their own delusion and grandiosity? Yeah. And I don't know any way around that but to acknowledge it and then to make sure that our internal heart posture is matching the heart posture he's got here. It, we don't get any credit. People sometimes say, oh, this is your church, Michael. I'm like, no, it's not. No. This is Jesus' church. I am called to shepherd this church for a moment in time. I assure you that the next three or four decades will pass really, really quickly. And guess where Michael will be? I am not going to be here and wherever, four or five decades, I have no idea how long God will give me or not give me, but this is not my church. This is his church, and I am called, and some of the ones up here are called, to steward and shepherd this church and attempt to lead it into the fullness of the kingdom of God and the power and presence of Jesus in our lives. That's it. Now, let's, let's, it's easy to look at pastors and leaders and go, oh yeah, look where they messed up. Now, let's flip the paradigm or flip the analogy. Can we as individual believers take credit for what God's done in our lives? Whew. Why do we pray before every meal? Why is that a thing that Christians often do? And we usually say, God, thank you for the food now we don't live in a uh, there's there is a um, food desert in our city but most of us don't live in that type of neediness but the reason for praying and blessing the food is number 1 but you're giving gratitude to God that who provided did you So is it easy for us as believers to move out of this humble posture that becomes a conduit of the kingdom of God that allows you to use sort of spiritual keys to open the kingdom of God in your life to where suddenly you are taking credit for what is happening in your life? Yes. And when we do that, church, what does the presence of the Holy Spirit begin to do? Now, does that make us not saved? Can churches go on with the presence and power of the Holy Spirit beginning to? Yes, they do all around our country. May we stay on our knees in great. Trepidation and humility and go, Lord, may we always be a church that postures ourself with dependence upon you, pointing to you that we do not take credit for what is happening. If you are a person, if you have a family, if in your heart of hearts, you are taking credit for what's happening in your life as opposed to giving God uh, glory, I would say, be careful. You hear me? You follow me? So when I look at Peter in this moment, he just led um, and, and he and the apostles, but they just led 3,000 people to Jesus. Um, the gift of the Holy Spirit is manifest. Then he sees this guy. He's healed from the legs down. And then all of a sudden, another crowd gathers, and another 2,000 people come to Jesus. So the, the church has gone from um, a, a, a few women at the cross of Christ and the apostle John. Everybody else bowed out and ran. Um, to 12, uh, well, 11, because... One of them um, betrayed Jesus and committed suicide, but 11 apostles, um, and then an upper room where there's 120 um, people gathered to pray after Jesus ascended, to now... uh, 3,120 to now 2,000 more, so we now have 5,120 believers. And I would say to you, the only way by which the church goes through these massive growths in the release of the Spirit, that they're moving in the fullness of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, is because they've postured their hearts full of humility. Now, I asked before, and I can wrestle with this a minute if you want, could the church have gone on meeting because it was built on the bedrock of truth if Peter took credit that day? Yeah. But would it have had the same power and presence? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So I, my um, preference and my prayer, even as we're in this church-wide fast, one of my prayers is, Lord, I don't just want to finish the race. I want to actually finish the race having given you glory every step of the way, never stepped in to take credit, um, keeping a humble heart posture, and have led people into the full reality of what a biblical version of Christianity, a relationship with Jesus, looks like. That's the goal. That's the prayer. So let's go back. Define humility. If I look at this passage, I think defining humility from this passage would be honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness, number one. But it's number two, exchanging our sinfulness for God's holiness. That's what humility is. And when you're living in this place where my righteousness is not, come on, is my righteousness mine? Whose righteousness is mine? Like, all right, go there a second. Y'all, come on, y'all. we gotta, we got to get this. Michael, so who lives inside of Michael? Jesus. Jesus, has ex- I've exchanged my brokenness, my sinfulness for the righteousness of Christ. Michael's righteousness, who does it belong to? Jesus. Why? So that I won't boast. There's actually a passage that Paul wrote about this. So that it develops humility and contrition in my heart so that the kingdom of God will continue to work in and through. That's the entire idea. Because if my righteousness was my own, because of human nature, fallen human nature, I should say, what would I do? I'd become a braggart, and you would too. No, I won't, Michael. Human nature. Okay. It's interesting because there was a, um, part part of it's legend, part of it's probably church history, but there's a scene... um, between a guy named Thomas Aquinas and one of the popes, Pope Innocent IV. the Fourth, and the the legend or the story goes that Thomas Aquinas, who was a devout um, follower of Jesus, walked in and opened a door, and the Pope was um, behind this closed door, Pope Innocent the Fourth, and Thomas Aquinas walked in, and um, Thomas looked at the Pope who's counting this large sum of silver and gold, and the Pope looked at Thomas and said, "Why, Thomas?" No longer does the church have to say, silver and gold, have I none? And as it goes, Thomas sat there pensively for just a minute and looked back at the Pope and said, ah, yes, but no longer can the church say, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. There is a connection between Our humility and contrition and dependence upon the Lord Jesus and the power and presence of the kingdom of God in our lives and in our church. My loose interpretation here in chapter 3, verse 11, is that if this had happened two or three months earlier, Peter would have taken credit and the Holy Spirit would have gently withdrawn And instead, what we have is Peter's sifting uh, in Luke 22 is a literal fulfillment of the words of Jesus in John 12, 24, where Jesus said, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Our role as believers is to come and die, come and lay down our life, come and exchange our sinfulness for the righteousness of Christ. Some of you heard me say that I have these daily declarations that I try to read many mornings. And a lot of that is actually reminding myself that I'm righteous in Jesus. A guy named A.W. Tozer that I absolutely love, uh, he wrote once and he said, God cannot bless a man or woman greatly until he has hurt them deeply. How did Peter get to the point where he could wield the power and presence of God in the way that he did? By being sifted. By being sifted. Charles Spurgeon once said, the worst thing that can happen to us is to have a path that is too smooth. One of the greatest blessings the Lord gave us is a cross. It's always mind-boggling to me that the Lord Jesus would preach the gospel before he died on a cross, and he would say, take up your cross and follow me. Before he died, I'm always like, how could you say that to people? What in the world was that like standing on a mountain saying, take up your cross and follow me? It's, like, it's an implement of death. How did they even know what he was talking about? It's no different than me standing here and saying, go get an electric chair and follow Jesus. I mean, really, it's like, it's, it's a what? It, it, it defies total logic. But when you begin to step back and look at it, the call is to lay down your sinfulness and exchange it for the righteousness of God. That's what he's saying. It's an invitation to experience the presence and the power of God. Another person that I like, Dr. Martin uh, Lloyd-Jones said, the worst thing that can happen to a man or woman is to succeed before they're ready. You know, I believe that humility opens the channels of heaven to allow the kingdom of God to work in us and through us we actually see Peter and John go from being competitors to being uh, partners, to cooperating with one another. So before the infilling power of the Holy Spirit, before they're sifted, before they're broken, before they've been through all that they've been through, they're competing for greatness. On the other side of it, as the Holy Spirit fills them in this passage, suddenly they become partners and teammates to advance the gospel of Christ Jesus. And if you're in competition with someone, you may even begin to ask, Lord, convict me. Humility creates a dependence in us, which allows the resurrection power of Jesus to work in us and through us. So in other words, we're not fighting for credit, but we're giving God glory. Make a note, you can read Philippians 2 if you want. But Peter could have fought for credit in this moment, or he could have given God glory. He couldn't do both, but he gave God glory. Humility allows us to rest in King Jesus, his work, his will, his way. In many ways, we're along for the ride. We're surrendering. If you're reading your one-year Bible, uh, this week we've been reading about um, Joseph in the Old Testament. And there's a passage I love because Pharaoh, who's... Pharaoh's not just like, you know, the king of Egypt, he is, but he's also the head of the known world at this time. It's the most powerful human alive. And Pharaoh calls Joseph into his presence and he asks him to interpret a dream. And Joseph says in Genesis 41:16, it's beyond my power to do this. Humility? <sighs> but God can tell you what it means. And set you at ease. I mean, look at that. But it took, if we went back and studied the life of Joseph, it's the same as the life of Peter. If Peter would have been given this opportunity to stand before a group of people, he would have taken credit for it uh, if he was too young, not broken, not prepared, just like Joseph. Joseph had these dreams as a kid, and he went to his brothers and bragged about his dreams, and his brothers hate him and threw him in a pit. Okay? But once he's been in prison, he's suffered, he's been sifted, he's learned to exchange his brokenness for the righteousness Christ. that he didn't understand Christ in the Old Testament, but allowing God, Yahweh, to work in him and through him, all of a sudden, he's got this humility that is allowing the kingdom of God to work. Humility allows us to acknowledge remaining sin. Is Michael in Jesus? Yes. Is Jesus in Michael? Yes. Does Michael, until I cross the finish line, does Michael have remaining sin in my life? Yes. That's hard for some of us. But it doesn't mean I'm performing my way out of it. I'm actually surrendering my way through it. So on any given day, if the Lord convicts me, it becomes, Lord, I lay that down. Would you forgive me? I see it. I agree with you. I exchange my brokenness for your righteousness. We all have strengths and deficiencies, motivations and apathy, noble goals and selfish desires, love and fear, pride and humility, generosity and greed, giving and then grasping. But uh, surrender or or this death of ourself gives uh, freedom from this remaining sin in our lives as Christians. There's a passage in Isaiah that I love. It's actually Isaiah 66:2, and it says, "These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word." Who does God look on with favor? Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and tremble at my word. Why is the favor of God resting on Peter in this moment? He's humble. He's contrary on spirit, and he's trembling at the very word of God. He is not taking credit for it. And suddenly the power and presence of God is able to work in and through the apostle Peter, and the church is growing, and the church is blessed. Humility draws the gaze and the favor and the presence of God into our lives, and pride chases the presence of God out. When I was 16, I set, I set out on a course uh, to plant a church, believe it or not. I came to Christ young. I was born and raised in a wonderful Christian home. By the time I was 13, 14, 15, and 16, I'm thinking I'm going to plant a church. And uh, my plan was to graduate from UNCW, and then I was going to take a brief run through seminary, and then I was going to start a big church in Wilmington when I was about 23 or 24. And it probably would have done great. And people would have come. And I think I'd have preached Michael and not Jesus. And the Lord let me go through a seven-year uh, super painful sifting from 19 to age 26, 27, where there was such brokenness. And not just brokenness, but humiliation, my own sin, things done around me and to me that I couldn't control. And after, at the, as the years have passed... When he called us to plant this church, I drugged my feet and went, I'll never be able to do it, Lord. I'll never be able to do it. I'm not good enough, I don't know enough, I'm too broken, it's never gonna work. Why? God takes a person through a journey of suffering and brokenness so that they can be resurrected to life in Christ Jesus. You want a great marriage? Journey through the suffering, journey through the brokenness, Begin to appropriate the life and resurrection power of Christ Jesus in you and encourage your spouse to do the same. You want a great journey at work. You want a situation with your roommates. Stop trying to change your spouse or your roommate or your kids or whatever and get in your own journey. Allow Jesus to work in you. And what happens is if Jesus is working in you and you're being defined at a higher level, guess what he's going to start doing with everybody else? Working on them. So let's talk about five practical symptoms that would indicate you need to grow in your humility. Number one, you're not (laughs) self-aware. You don't know what you don't know. Ask a few people how you come across. Ask them how you're doing. Ask them what they see. Get someone who will tell you the truth, not someone who's just gonna give you the Sunday school answer. You hear me? Number two, lack of humility shows up when I encounter pain and disappointment. If I'm caught off guard, I'm reactive, I'm defensive when I encounter pain and disappointment. If I'm walking in humility, trusting Jesus, I can react in a way that's gentle and wise and strong. A lack of humility can show up in terms of exaggerated expectations for myself or church or organization you're in, your business, your family, your kids, your grandkids, and it can lead to real disappointment and discouragement. Another symptom That you need to grow in your humility is you tend to take credit instead of giving God glory. Can we take credit for failure? Can we take credit for success? Another symptom is I tend to compete with people instead of partner with people. It's a symptom. You need to grow in your humility. Partnering people for God's glory. Let's end here. In fact, uh, worship team, if you guys are there, come on back out, Daniel and Missy. <clears throat> you don't necessarily need to turn here, but in 1 Peter 5.6, Peter actually wrote, this is the same Peter that just preached in our passage and the guy was healed and 2,000 people came to faith. But 1 Peter 5.6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. And here's what I'm absolutely convinced. You guys can start playing whenever you're ready. But here's what I'm convinced, is that if you read the passage where Peter got out of the boat and walked on water, he actually walked on water for a little while, and then who remembers what happened? He sank. Okay? So Peter's now sinking in the water, right? And he's calling out to Jesus, and he's reaching up to Jesus, and what does the hand of Jesus do? Reaches out to him. So I want you to get the imagery here. I want you to get the imagery here. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up. I'm convinced that when Peter wrote this, he was thinking about sinking in the waves of the Sea of Galilee. I'm convinced that when Peter stood in this Acts 3 and said, why in the world are you trying to give us credit? We didn't do it. This is God. God is that he was thinking of sinking beneath the waves and crying out for the hand of Jesus, and Jesus coming over and picking him up and lifting him up. Daniel had us sing, Surrender. And the whole idea of surrender is laying it all down. But when, when uh, if you watch a movie and they say, um, Surrender, come out with your... What's Peter do when he's sinking? Surrender. Hands up. In this moment, surrender becomes a picture both of laying it all down, but it also becomes a a picture of we are now being made victorious with Christ because he's lifting us up through the waters. Follow me? Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Let's stand up. Prayer team, if you guys would come up to the front or even down on the sides, just make yourself available. If you're here in the building or even online and you've never given your heart to this King Jesus, if you've never exchanged your brokenness for the the life of Christ and his righteousness, I'd love to pray with you. I'm going to be right here. If you're online, make a comment in the comment section, and we'd love to follow up with you. Prayer team, would y'all come on down if you're here for prayer. I'm going to close us. Maybe we can worship as we close. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would be a church that humbles ourselves before your mighty hand. Father, I pray that we would be a church that bows our knee before you and that you and you alone would be lifted up. God, I pray that we would be a church that knows the mighty hand of God lifting us from beneath the waves, lifting us through the waves. Father, I pray for people in here who feel like they're drowning in the waves, that they would sense your hand lifting them through it as they raise their hands in surrender and raise their hands in victory in Jesus. Father, we love you, we praise you, we believe in you. Father, I pray just like Peter deflected all the credit and pointed to you that we would be a church that deflects all the credit and points to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast of Saltbox Church. If this content was helpful to you, please like it, rate it, review it, and share it on social media as that is helpful to us. We believe when a person grows in their own Jesus journey, everyone around them benefits and gets better.